Welcome to GodPod. This is a podcast from St Paul's Theological Centre, based in St Melitus College, which is a community of people studying and teaching Christian theology here in the UK and around the world. Graham Tomlin, Mike Lloyd and the occasional guest join me, Jane Williams, in discussing God, life, theology, in fact, just about anything. We are going to uh, resume our evening and um, in this part of the evening uh, we're just going to have a a conversation with um, Chris Tilling. Some many of you know Chris Tilling is our New Testament lecturer here at um, a senior New Testament lecturer, I should say, here at St. Melitus. Let's get these titles right. And um, uh, just going to ask some questions of David, just to sort of draw out some of the themes that are there. And uh, then uh, there'll be a chance for you to ask questions. So as you see, the um, the hashtag for tweets that are there and the text, please do uh, send in your questions and we'll get those fed through to the front so that in the, the latter half of the evening we can do that. Discriminate against non-tweeters. Well, the, the texts are there as well. Yes. Everyone's a texter these days, aren't they? Almost. Mm. <laughs> yeah, we're going to be technologically savvy to be. I mean, this, is, this, is, this, is, uh, this is textist. <laughs> exactly, oh, yes. That's lovely, yes. There you go. Um, David, just to kick off with a question. Um, uh, you, talk very, you gave us a really good sort of introduction to, uh, to Hans Fry and some of his um, key sort of contributions to theology. <coughs> as, you, as you mentioned, he, he was one of the, um, the uh, people who kind of uh, adopted this phrase, I'm picking, you know, picking it up from his teacher, Robert Calhoun, but he, um, he used it, he didn't develop it a great deal, but he used it a number of times in his, his, his writings. I'm just quoting from one thing that he said at one point, was um, uh, he wrote this about it, he said, my own vision of what might be propitious for our day, split as we are, not so much into denominations as, as into two schools of thought, is that we need a kind of generous orthodoxy, there's the phrase, which would have in it an element of liberalism and an element of evangelicalism. I don't know if there's a voice between these two, as a matter of fact. If there is, I would like to pursue it. And uh, I guess my question is, when he talks about an element of liberalism, an element of evangelicalism, what do you think he meant by those two things? What, what, is, the, what is the element of liberalism? What is the element of evangelicalism that he had in mind when he was thinking of generous orthodoxy? I, I, I think what he actually was at in, for instance, in, in positioning himself in between Schleiermacher and Bart, is that when it comes to sort of mainstream orthodox doctrines, you know, he'd be with Bart. You know, yeah. uh, but that part of that type four is that you are continually open to ad, in ad hoc ways to all sorts of other discourses. Now, he saw Schleiermacher as much more wholeheartedly sort of involved in a correlationist sort of theology, you know, where things go back and forth. And, um, and I think, you know, and where, um, you know, there isn't a decisive voice given to the mainstream author or to the, you know, in, in his case, to the way he understands the New Testament. Um, so, there, and my, my way of looking at it would be that he is uh, 
more what, I mean, you know, he really didn't like that things liberal either, you know, in a sense, you know, that, that, that um, and I feel it's a sort of political terminology that does t untold damage to the church, you know, to label somebody a liberal, to label somebody a conservative, just is terrible, because you should be able to be liberal in some things, you know, author, you know and, and radical and so forth, you know, as I, as I said. But what I think he, he was on about was that, that if you are faced, for example, with the balance of arguments by scholars and all sorts of other people that, well, maybe Jesus, the, the body of the dead Jesus wasn't in the tomb, you know, and rose from the dead, and maybe, it, maybe something else happened. You know, there's no doubt where you go as a mainstream Christian Orthodox type four person. You know, you say, yes, I believe in the resurrection of the, you know, the body of the dead Jesus. You know, something happened to the body of the dead Jesus. Sort of thing, that, 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 you know, I, I'm, I'm for the resurrection, you know. Um, but there'd be a whole range of other things that wouldn't be part of the creed, that wouldn't be, you know, and in that way, he would have a sort of a whole series of ad hoc engagements and be very open to many of the positions of someone like Schleiermacher, for example, or Schleiermacher's heirs, you know, in the more liberal types of, of Christianity. And, but that, that's a constant discernment, isn't it? Because, you know, one of the things that divides the church always is, which falls into which categories? Should this be church dividing or not? You know, and I, my own feeling is that, you know, many of the issues that, people find to be church dividing shouldn't be. Because I guess that, um, I mean, if, it's, if he's engaged in a debate there between Barth and Schleiermacher in terms of, would you see that as being, if you like, Schleiermacher as the generous side, Barth as the orthodox side? Because I guess there's a, two ways of reasoning that phrase generous orthodoxy. Yeah. One is that generous sort of qualifies orthodoxy. And so there's a sort of generous orthodoxy. The other is that orthodoxy itself is generous yes. by its very yes. nature. Yes. I, I think Bart would certainly go for the second. You know, that, that, that would be his own self-description, so to speak. Um, but, and, of course, Bart said yes much more often later in life than he did earlier. I mean, to, to read volume 4.3 of the Church Dogmatics, you know, is to see what I think is the most significant major, you know, big theological work of the 20th century, you know, because Bart had, by that stage, got over a lot of his saying, no, 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 you know, of volume one, one of the church dogmatics and the things before that, uh, you know, and, and really by the time he got to 4.3, you know, with those wonderful treatment of the vocation, you know, of, of Christian vocation and of the, uh, the sending of the church and so forth, um, that there was a generosity in all of that and the lights of creation and so forth, you know, that, that, that actually was not the, the same Bart in many ways of the, of, of the earlier. So, so um, and of course, Bart said in his Nachwort to the whole edition of Schleiermacher, you know, he, he said, well, you know, if I were to have things over again, I think he was being very ironic, imagine beginning all over again, the church dogmatics, but, but, um, but if I were to begin it all over again, um, I might actually take from Schleiermacher the hint that you could begin with the Holy Spirit and do a whole theology of the Holy Spirit. And of course, his later work on freedom, for example, as, as in volume 4.3, is very much in line with that. So um, I think there'd be, there'd be quite a blurring, you know, and, and Bart was always absolutely 
absolutely against those people who were Bartian in the sense of saying, oh, no time for Schleiermacher, even though he'd attacked Schleiermacher on certain points. You know. He always thought Schleiermacher was the greatest theologian. He did. He did, yes. Century, yes, yes. And I'm very interested that people like Paul Nimmo, for example, up in Aberdeen, you know, one of my favourites of that generation of, of theologians, you know, are very... He, he did a wonderful book on Bart's ethics, and now he's really deep into Schleiermacher as well, you know, and trying to learn from him. And I, I think this... You don't have to agree with everyone, everything somebody says, in order to learn a huge amount from them. This reminds me of a, a little story. I don't know if this is apocryphal or not. Maybe you could tell me of Emil Brunner. Um, when he'd written his work on Friedrich Schleiermacher, he took all of the, his, uh, his Schleiermacher books out into the garden and burnt them all. <laughs> so quite the opposite, not so generous, uh, perhaps. In, in. But yes. I wanted to pick up on, on something that, that Graham um, was pressing on. I think this is really quite crucial for, for many of us because we tend to think in one-dimensional sliding scales, because they're simple, conservative through to liberal, uh, yeah. by and large. I mean, in politics, yeah. right to left. And we know deep down that these are too simplistic. Um, but with Fry's uh, critique, well, what, could, what could you offer us by way of a roadmap um, for negotiating theological difference in a way that isn't simplistic, in a way that doesn't demonize the other is there another way of capturing the imagination of you know popular discourse in the way that frankly conservative to liberal has because it's simple is there another option for us well think? i think his five types are exactly that you know in other words the you know for those who don't know you know the five types they begin at one end where you know in type one where you have some <coughs> philosophical or other framework uh, which is your criterion for what's true and false in Christianity, basically. You, you fit it, you know, Kant is his example, you know, where you have a, a rational framework into which Christianity has to fit. And if it fits, great. If it doesn't, out. You know, you know, and so that's one extreme. The other extreme is where you have a purely Christian framework of some sort, and you never enter into any dialogue with either, any other forms of truth at all. You know, and you just say, no, this is it, you know, in an absolutely basic way. You know, this is my world of meaning, and that's take it or leave it, you know, you know, but no argument about it. And then, but the, the really interesting ones, of course, are in the middle. And, uh, you know, bang in the middle is the Schleiermacher, where you constantly go back and forward, mutually critical correlation, you know, you know, where, where you correlate endlessly and you're, you're saying, well, look, on the one hand, Christian identification of, you know, who God is, who Jesus is, says this. On the other hand, you can say that all sorts of other discourses can argue with that. You don't give priority to any one overarching discourse, you know. So therefore, there's a, an inherent instability, Fry thought, and I think he was... He was right about that. You, know, you, you see this in all sorts of uh, the, 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 theologians where you, where you feel, yeah, they do that, they do that, and they don't actually give you anything that you could confidently die for. You know? <laughs> and and um, so, um, the, so to one side, nearer Kant is what he calls Bultmann, you know, where you have a, some sort of a philosophical thing, but you try to baptize it as well as you can. And, you know, he did existentialism and, so, you know, understood the guy. But, but basically, you cut out of the gospel things that don't really ring true with existentialism, you know. <clears throat> but then the one that Fry himself most identified with was, of course, the, 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 the type, um, you know, to, to the other side, uh, type four, where you give priority to the core affirmations of the faith. You say, look, 
Um, the Christian identification of who Jesus is in the Gospels, I trust it. Of course I can't argue in a knockdown argument that proves to anyone in a neutral way this, but I actually do believe this. And I trust this, you know, th these testimonies to, to, to Jesus, and, this is the, and, and that is my core criterion. Uh, but you also allow all sorts of things, as I said, in ad hoc ways, you know, to engage with that. Now, it seems to me that a lot of, you know, that sets up the argument in a much more interesting way than liberal. Because, you know, liberal is a sort of absolutist sort of thing, isn't it? You know, you're all liberal, you're all this. You know, no way, no way do you need to be all liberal or all conservative or all, all radical or whatever. You know, you can genuinely be wise, you know, and choose this, choose that, choose that. But at the heart of Fry's thing is, there really is a criterion, which is the identity of Jesus Christ and the God who is in line with Jesus Christ. And, and it does seem to me that sets up a much healthier debate. And, you know, and it did for him too. You know, and the, the, the wonderful book by Mike Higton on, uh, on, on Hans Fry really does get this, and I, I, I think offers to anyone who wades through it, um, you know, a really wise way of getting beyond the, uh, you know, those liberal, conservative, radical, uh, you know, political labels. Just to pick up on, um, I guess, related to that, a theme you mentioned earlier on in relation to Schleiermacher and this, um, and Bart's sort of uh, belated realisation that he might have started with the Holy Spirit as a, as a, as a form of theology. And um, uh, I guess my, my question is... Um, I guess it's to do with what is the role of the Holy Spirit within the theological enterprise itself? In that, um, I'm thinking of in terms of these polarities. I think of someone like Leslie Newbigin, who, you know, his um, work on the Church wrote about how you know he, he was thinking about the polarity between Protestant and Catholic, but then discovering in comes the Pentecostal, Pentecostal <coughs> yes. strand of Christianity that somehow brought a, a kind of unity to these two that, in otherwise, they were always sort of in opposition to one another. And so, um, I suppose, theologically, methodologically, can you say something about the role of the Spirit in this generous orthodoxy we're talking about and in the theological enterprise itself? Well, I was emphasizing the Johannine Spirit, which I think, you know, has an awful lot to it in, the, in this regard. I mean, you know, I mean, I feel a bit, you know, talking in your presence, Graham, about the spirit, you know, who's written so much yourself, really, really. The, um, but um, I'm also actually really looking forward. I was rung up last week by my former student, Simeon Zal, who's now on the staff in Cambridge, and he's just finishing right now his book on the Holy Spirit, which I'm greatly looking forward to and hoping that that will be a, a, an occasion to... Um, uh, to, to, to reflect further on it. But, but actually, the, the thing that I've read most recently uh, was another book that hasn't been published yet, but Tom Greggs in Aberdeen is writing a three-volume ecclesiology, and he's just finished one volume of it, and I read it before Christmas for him, before he sent it off to the, the publisher. Um, and it was very much the church as the event of the Holy Spirit, you know, that this is what it is. And it was a lovely ecclesiology in that the church is the event, but the church is not in control of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit blows where it wills. God is free. It, 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 God isn't going to be limited to where the church is. And, uh, and therefore, he's got this wonderful thing of that, you know, what the Spirit does is it inspires, it, you know, the Spirit inspires us to be utterly for God 
and utterly for the world and utterly together in being for God and the world. So that's the, that's the ecclesiology. And the radical implications of that are that you are being, his understanding of Catholicity is you are being most Catholic, most you know, open to the whole world at the, where the church is engaged with the world in various ways, you know, in mission, in, 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 in politics, in, in whatever, you know, in, in, in the world. And, and I love that conception of the, the spirit, that the spirit, you know, it, it is creating the church and all of us in our vocations and our missions and, and, and so forth, but for the sake of the world God loves and that the spirit also meets us out there too in all sorts of really surprising ways. I mean, I, I think, you know, obviously my, my theology of the spirit has a lot about surprise in it, which I think is very biblical. Um, and, um, <coughs> but but, but the, um, <coughs> the, the other thing I, I think about... Um, the, the, the spirit in John's gospel is this, you know, I mean, I think, well, I mean, the, the simple way of saying it was it is proto-Trinitarian, you know, that you, you are driven towards the doctrine of the Trinity. I, I, you know, it, I mean, it's an obvious thing for an Orthodox Christian to say that in a way. You'd say, oh, well, of course, you know, but actually it has been my experience over the last 16 years or so wrestling with John's gospel that the, the logic of the Trinity becomes more and more verified, you know, the more you, the more you get into that. And I'm particularly interested in the daring that the Spirit inspires. You know, that if you are going to be led into all the truth by the Spirit, you know, and that, and that Jesus, it's, and it's still Jesus, I mean, it's, it's not separate from Jesus, you know, that, that, and that Jesus is the one through whom all things were made. You are being given a horizon of all academic disciplines, all cultures, all religions, all of those things, that, you know, Jesus is already, because through, every, through him all things are created, in relationship to all those. And the spirit, therefore, is the one that opens you up continually to the truth of all those things, and also to action and love in relation to them all. Um, I mean, I'm, as you, as you heard, I, I, think I quoted it twice, you know, the spirit is given without measure, and there's something about the, you, you know, and that's not at all in tension or that with, with, with who Jesus is, it seems to me, in John's Gospel. John's Gospel, the farewell discourses are an extraordinary uh, treatment of that. I was just related to that. Sorry, Chris, you'll come in with a question in a minute, but just related to that. Because um, uh, one of the things that the Spirit does inspire is, is worship. Yes. And... Um, uh, one of my favourite patristic theologians, Basil the Great, was keen of saying it is only by the Spirit that we are able to worship God, and without the Spirit we are unable to worship at all. And um, that the Spirit draws us into worship of, of God because he enables us to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and, uh, and so on. And I suppose within that word orthodoxy, as you were drawing our attention to earlier on, there is that sense of orthodoxy, right glorifying, right, right worshipping. And... Um, and I suppose I'm, I'm thinking about the, again, the relationship between theology and worship in the sense that they are so tightly together, you know, in, in John's gospel, for example. So John 17, as yes. he says, is, is the, maybe the, the heart of that gospel is, is a prayer. It's a prayer by the, from the Son to the Father. It's, it's worship. It's theology as worship. And uh, so it seems to me that the, the way in which we often divorce theology from worship and think, well, theology is something we do in a classroom and worship is something we do in a church. 
Um, that doesn't really help us very much in terms of what no, a generous no, orthodoxy no. is really about and what real deep Christian theology is about. I mean, I think one of the most... I was just talking beforehand to Philip Welsh, who's here somewhere. Where are you, Philip? The, the, uh, who... who um, you know, was mentioning the book by Alan Eccleston, Scaffolding of Spirit, on John's Gospel. You know, and it is, it's, it's about praying John's Gospel. You know, and it's absolutely wonderful. He even goes to the extent of having at the back John's Gospel divided into 30 passages so that you can pray it like, you know, he says, pray it like you pray the Psalms, you know, in the Book of Common Prayer, this was, you know, where you, you pray it every month, all through the month, you know, and, and, and I, I think that, you know, the more one goes on with John, the more one, one finds that, um, you know, the, the prayer and the thought and the theology and the spirit are just absolutely inseparable. And the best theology starts in worship and yes. ends in worship. Yes, I mean, as Bart says, come Holy Spirit, is the prayer of prayers, you know, that, 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 that you, know, it, you know, that's what leads into all the, all the rest, and that's basically what you were saying, I think. Chris? Can I go now? <laughs> <laughs> no, um, um, changing track a little bit, um, picking up on a, on a phrase that you used an awful lot, um, both the, the who question and identity, and uh, I, I think... Um, our mutual friend Richard Borkham has um, has taught me much uh, of this word via Hans Fry and Paul Ricoeur, where he speaks of the divine identity of Jesus Christ in in the New Testament. Um, but when Fry was using this kind of language, and even when Richard Borkham was deploying it back towards the end of the 90s, it wasn't common in academic parlance identity. Of course, now getting on to 20 years later, um, it's, it appears in every newspaper every day in regular um, PhDs published every week. And you might argue that its sense has shifted somewhat, where before we might think of a, a stable who-ness, which is certainly how Richard has used this to do work with Christology, um, we now have the phrase, I identify as, as a much more fluid way of engaging with identity. And I wonder if you had any comment on that and how language has shifted and if that alters how you might use it. Yes, I mean, I mean Richard Borkham is very interesting. In fact, one of my great experiences with John's Gospel was when Richard Borkham retired from St Andrews to live around the corner in Cambridge and <clears throat> when Richard Hayes was over on sabbatical, you know, we, um, I, I emailed both of them and said, would you like to read John's Gospel together? So we put 21 dates in the diary between July and Christmas, three hours each, and we did one chapter every three hours and it was absolutely wonderful, you know, because they are both two mature New Testament scholars, very different as well, you know, and um, I came to the conclusion, whenever they agreed on anything, they must be right, you know, that, 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 but, but, the, but on, on the identity thing, I mean, I agree completely that, that it's, it's become, it's so laden with ideologies of various sorts now as well. Um, I mean, I still think, you know, you're always faced with terms like this. You know, there's no sacredness about the word identity, but, uh, but you're always faced, do you save it or do you abandon it? You know, do you try to give your definition to it? I mean, the great words of scripture too, you know, you're faced with that. And um, 
for me, my, um, I tend to spend at least 10 years on a monograph, you know, and, and uh, one of the 10 years that I spent, which my sort of crisis book, was on exactly this theme. It's called Self and Salvation, Being Transformed. You know, and, and at the heart of it, actually, was reading and rereading many times over Paul Ricoeur's Oneself as Another. You know, I, I decided that that was my favourite philosophical book of the 20th century, you know, because it was just so profound. He sort of recapitulated, it seems to me, the whole modern debate about, about self, selfhood and identity, um, you know, from, from the, the Nietzschean scattered self to the Cartesian over-focused self. And he is going for, I think, an extraordinarily wise concept of, uh, you know, of, of selfhood and, and identity in that, and leading through from language to to, to narrative, to ethics. Uh, and then, of course, he follows it through in some of his lesser-known theological work as well, which I was also in figuring the sacred. Um, and, um, you know, I, I, I think um, my own feeling is it's a word worth saving, um, that, you know, you, you do get involved in all sorts of complex debates, and that highly subjective, you know, me choosing, inventing my own identity, Thing, of course, is not at all recur, you know, or, nor is it fry, and, and so forth. And so, therefore, one just enters into those debates, you know, and says, "That's not what I mean by," you know. But you do that all the time in things, don't you? Yeah. And uh, get to take, take another question on this. I mean, the, the generous word, the generous orthodoxy, is all about um, a kind of sense of giving, a sense of, and, and you just talked about receptive ecumenism as a form of um, conversation within within the Christian Church about that sense of being able to receive from, from other forms of Christian life. And, and obviously, you've been involved in your um, academic career a lot in, in interfaith dialogue and uh, scriptural reasoning and all of that. Yes, I've just spent 10 days in India in a most remarkable Hindu university there, yes. Yeah. And then my question was simply, what, what have you learned from that process, that, that enterprise uh, about generosity and about how that might speak into some of our internal Christian debates about theology yeah. and and um, the divisions that we have within... Well, in the, in the interfaith world, I mean, there's just no replacement for encountering real, live Muslims, Christians, Jews, atheists, etc. You know, you know, that, that <clears throat> if you don't have a Muslim friend, basically, I've come to the conclusion, you know, you're, you're not going to understand Islam well enough to live in our culture. You know, you know that that you know you really do need that. You really do need that, and that, that so encounter is absolutely fundamental. Um, the the second thing is that the most fruitful single practice that I have found it won't be news to to many of you, you know, because I've been associated with this for a long long time is is scriptural reasoning, but by which I mean genuine mutual hospitality around each other's texts, around the deep sources of meaning. It's much better in my experience than trying to enter into a face-to-face -face thing where I ask you, and what does it mean to be Muslim to you? You know, you, know, you go for the deep sources of meaning in, in, in traditions. You know, you go to the Quran, you go to the Tanakh, you go to the Bible. And, and you know, what I was doing in India was just helping to pioneer in this remarkable Hindu university um, 
you know, doing a scriptural reasoning relationship. I mean, I'm the co-chair of the Rose Castle Foundation in this country, which is Rose Castle up in Cumbria. And Sarah Snyder, the Archbishop of Canterbury's advisor on reconciliation, is the, is the director of it. And we are now the UK hub for scriptural reasoning, you know, and, and we're, we're trying to, uh, you know, we are resourcing this university in India, which wants, because they're very concerned that the relationships between especially Christians, Muslims, and Hindus in India are not good and have huge dangers attached. What do you put into the ecosystem in order to help there to be better relationships? And this very wise pro-vice-chancellor of the university who trains as a psychiatrist here, Chinmay Pandya, um, and was you know, a consultant psychiatrist in St. Thomas's Hospital here, but he's now the pro-vice-chancellor of this university and also one of the leaders of this movement of 120 million people there. And... Um, and, and he is really concerned. He's founding an Indian Institute of Leadership for leader, of faith and leadership, for leadership in the academy, in business, and in the religious communities. And the basic practice is this engaging around your rich texts. And my wife and I, Deborah and I, she's an Anglican priest, you know, we, we had a wonderful session with some of the, the staff there, you know, getting into, you know, we did John 1, uh, for, the, the, the opening part of the, the prologue, you know, for, 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 a, for an hour or so, and, and then a, a text that they suggested. And um, there is something about that mutual, generous hospitality to each other where... You know, and, and the theology, the Johannine theology for me underlying this is that, you know, these are people through whom, you know, they, they, they were made through Christ, they were created through Christ too, you know, you know that this is, that, that you know, and, and that we are to be led into all through, and the spirit blows in all sorts of extraordinary ways, you know, and, and my experience of, you know, interfaith engagement is that there are continual surprises you know in it and um, you know it's one of the things the spirit I think is doing at the moment. Can I pick up on that word surprises because that, that's <laughs> one of the things I found most refreshing when I teach New Testament uh, I, I will often refer to the centrality of Jesus through it all but what you what you brought us to see tonight is that Jesus was surprising and I, I think you said something like surprising and sometimes shocking yeah and I thought, goodness, that's absolutely right. I suppose then the question becomes, what would surprising and shocking look like? I mean, do we, should we expect some surprising and shocking things to be discovered about who Jesus is beyond the creeds? Or, or, or what do you mean? Can you well, talk well, about I, that a I, little I'll more? I'll tell you the most, I think probably the most profound surprise that has shaped me over many years, and, and also my wife. Um, I mean, it's the L'Arche communities of Jean Vanier. You know, I mean, it seems to me that what Jean Vanier, you know, for those communities of people with, learning disability, with and without learning disabilities living together, uh, you know, and tw 25 years ago, Jean, I, I was already involved with a community of theologians, some theologians with, with L'Arche in, 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 uh, in France. And uh, I'd met Jean Vanier, and he came to Cambridge, and I decided to introduce him to my wife. And um, she answered the door uh, carrying our one-year-old and said, Oh, Jean, lovely to meet you, but I'm afraid our... Daniel has done a filthy nappy, and um, I must change him. And uh, Jean immediately said, Don't worry. I'll change him and scooped up our one-year-old and changed his nappy. And then 
by the end of lunch, he had said to my wife, you should found a large community in Cambridge because this is a place where there are many people with learning abilities. They need relationships with people with learning disabilities. They need that. And, um, the, uh, and so 20 years later or so, she did find the thing, something that we're now both involved in called Lynn's House, which is a small Christian community. It's not a large, we don't take care of, you know, it's not a full care thing because that's so difficult in our culture to do that, you know. You know that, that, but but it's, it's much more like a, a sabbat, a Sabbath sort of place, you know, where people come for meals, hospitality, friendship, and there's a core community of four Christians living, you know, in a community, a little intentional community uh, together. But now, Larsh, what Jean Vanier does it seems to me, is in many ways, you know, when you go to a large community, you know, you see friendships that you'd never have dreamt of before, you know, happening, and the testimonies of assistants and so forth, and of our people who take part in our little thing in, in, in Cambridge. Like with John Swinton, by the way, has founded one up in Aberdeen now, you know, and he's being a good professor with, uh, you know, he, he's got graduate students involved on scholarships who are, you know, do, who are, who are doing for a friendship house, it's called, in, in, in Aberdeen. I was just up there before Christmas. Um, but, but the, you, you know, the, the, well, can I tell you a Johannine story of Jean Vanier, you know, which sums up to me the, the theology at the heart of this, because, and, and it is about shock, uh, really. Um, you know, I, I, when Jean Vanier got his Templeton Prize, you know, he, he invited my wife and myself down to one of the celebrations down here in London. And, and, um, and I was about to give a lecture on John 19 somewhere. And so I decided to ask Jean, what was he thinking? You know, by the way, Jean Vanier has written the best contemporary uh, commentary on John's Gospel that I know called Drawn into the Mystery of Jesus through the Gospel of John. Has anybody read it? Ah, great. A handful. Everyone should read this. It's the most superb commentary on the Gospel of John. But, 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 but I, I decided to ask Jean uh, what his thoughts were on the Gospel of John now, uh, uh, chapter 19. And he gripped me by the arm, as he did, you know, and he said, in John 19, Jesus is humiliated. He is flogged, he's mocked, he's got the crown of thorns, and he's stripped. And the people in our communities, he said, have been humiliated. They've been marginalized. You know, they don't get an education. They don't get marriage. They don't get money. They don't get status. They don't, you know, they are marginal. They're, they are marginalized. They're often a deep embarrassment to their, to, to their families and everyone else. Um, and he said, and Jesus, therefore, is, this is my words, you know, in the position of maximum disability on the cross. And what Jean said does he do? He forms a community. Here is your son. Here is your mother. You know, in other words, he forms a community. In other words, at the heart of community is the humiliated one. You know, mm. is the, the, the one who is pushed. You know, and, and, and th there's something so shocking about that as a prophecy to our world. You know, in other words, that any community where the educated are central, the beautiful, the wealthy, the, uh, the, 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 the talented, the, the sports star, you know, any community where those are the central people is not healthy because nearly everyone feels marginal. You know, whereas if you put the marginalized, if you put the people with disabilities, the little child in the midst, you know, then you have 
everyone else has a role too. It's, it isn't that you don't have a role, but, but, but you've, you, 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 are, you have a healthy community. You have a community that has the possibility of love and compassion at its heart. David, can I um, just pick up a few questions that have been tweeted and texted in? And um, uh, I wanted to, to around, I guess, the question of the, the limits of generous orthodoxy. And there's one here that talks about how, um, how the New Testament talks often about false teachers. Um, how, does, how does generous orthodoxy apply in the context of that strand of the New Testament that seems to identify those who are true teachers of the faith and those who are false teachers of the faith, those who lead you in the right direction, those who lead you in the, in the wrong direction. Yeah, I, I think you, you, you have to make calls on these things. I mean, you have to say some things are false. My goodness. You know, if you are being led into all the truth, you know, it does mean there's an awful lot of falsehood too, you know, and, and I, I don't have any difficulty at all. I'm a theologian, my goodness, who, who uh, you know, <laughs> who says certain things are definitely false, <laughs> you know, and false teachers. Yeah, everything can't be true. So, in other words, but, but how you discern those limits, and in particular, what you say is church dividing, is a really different matter. You know, that, that, that I am somebody who is deeply disturbed by the multiplying number of issues on which people say they will split the church you know if you take John 17 seriously that the deepest desire of Jesus is for us to be completely one with God and with each other and if you say to somebody who confesses Christ I'm splitting from you because of something that Jesus never said anything about and isn't in the creed my goodness, I'm disturbed. You know, because it seems to me it goes against the core desire. I mean, it is such a passionate desire at the climax. And of course, you know, it's interesting that it's at the most, you know, the, the later document of the Gospels, you know, that this is most intense in John's Gospel. Just as in Ephesians, the later document, you know, one church, one, one faith, one baptism, you know, you know, the unity is so passionate. My, I mean, I remember I... I, I for several years, I, I led Bible studies for the primates, beautifully called primates of the Anglican Communion, uh, you know, for the archbishops of the Anglican Communion in the aftermath of the 1998 Lambeth Conference, beginning, beginning with, uh, with, with one in Porto. And I remember at one of them, um, you know, there were the usual predictions of the church splitting in advance. Um, and uh, there was this awful experience of, you know, people nabbing archbishops as they left the centre, you know, in order to persuade them of things and, and so forth. And, um, and um, I mean, it was very disturbing in some ways to see the politics of the Anglican Communion close up, you know. But, but, um, but I, I was also, you know, part of the little group that George Carey, who was the archbishop at the time, set up in order to write the communique long in advance of the end of the meeting, you know, because he knew, the, you know, and he put in the, it, he put the archbishops on the communique writing thing, all the really problematic archbishops, you know, the ones who were going to be absolutely against each other. And, and Robert, Rob, Robin Eames, the Archbishop of Armagh, was the chairman of it. And he began by saying, well, gentlemen, I'm afraid I don't think we can ever come to anything near agreement on this. You know, despair, which of course immediately activated the pastoral sense of the archbishops, you know, and they made sure that, that actually they, you know, we, we did start talking to each other. But the really critical moment in that was when 
we had an extra Bible study. They were so moved by engaging in the Bible that we had an extra Bible study. And the phrase that emerged from all that was that... I, I, I forget the actual phrase, but it was to the effect that when we are at the foot of the cross of Christ, if we turn away from somebody else who is at the foot of the cross of Christ with us, you know, then we are actually violating the whole meaning of the cross of Christ. You know, and, and, uh, you know, the, and it, it was so interesting to see that the Archbishop, you know, we did emerge from that with a communique, which actually had a phrase about it in this, which is worth looking up. You know, it's Porto 2000. Um, and, um, but, but that sense that Christ died for us to be reconciled. I mean, I often say that if you're tempted to split the church, wait about a hundred years. Because if you look back on a hundred years' time, usually the things that are split, you know, slavery I mentioned today. You look at the debates about slavery in America, these highly sophisticated Princeton theologians arguing that of course the Bible says we can have slaves. And how that reads today, I think a lot of our debates today will read a bit similarly. And there's another question here which relates a little bit to what you've been talking about, which is um, you've uh, emphasized very much the focus on, on Jesus as the heart of generous orthodoxy. What, what, would a, what would the kind of theology you've been talking about today, what would it say about scripture? What would it say about the Bible um, in that context? Well, if you want to know what I say about the Bible, I have a long screed, a whole chapter on it um, in um, Christian Wisdom. Uh, you know, uh, desiring God and learning in love is the, is, is, is the you know, and, and that, um, you know, uh, I mean, how do you summarize, you know, I, I mean, a whole theology of scripture, but, but um, the, the book that I found most illuminating is the one jointly edited by, I think, uh, Richard Hayes and, and Ellen Davis. You know, it was a, it was a, a, a book uh, that was a, a project. Robert Jensen was part of it too. Who was it writing on Robert Jensen? Oh, yes. Um, the, the, um, it, and, it, and Richard Borkham was part of it as well. And it's a wonderful seeking of what I would see as the most, the richest wisdom on interpreting the Bible. Seeking you know, the identity of Jesus, wasn't it? Was it? Seeking the I'm, of I'm Jesus. not sure that was... No, it had scripture in the title. I think it had scripture in the title. Anyhow, the... the, the um, but it's... Um, you know, I used that as a sort of basis, you know, because it has a whole set of principles uh, about reading scripture. And um, I think we do need a wisdom of scripture. Um, and... Um, you know, I, I hope there is implicit in all that I said tonight about you know, scripture and Old Testament and New Testament. I mean, I think the most disturbing thing in practice for me in the church in relation to scripture is the ignoring of the Old Testament. And there's another question on, on that here, which is exactly, exactly on that theme. And how, how do we get over that? How do we get, that, get over that ignorance or that kind of sidelining of the Old Testament in the church? Is, are there kind of particular ways in which you would recommend to us, to the churches that we're part of, to, um, to, to restore that sense of the, the Old Testament rootedness? Of well, read Ellen Testament. Davis, you know, or read, you know, my other favorite current theologian, I've just read her 
wonderful book on the doctrine of God, uh, Catherine Sonderegger, you know, her, her Systematic Theology, Volume 1, The Doctrine of God, is marvellously Old Testament. You know, you know, it really is. It's New Testament as well, but it's, it's steep. You know, it, you know, as she talks about God in relation to the Old Testament, it just comes alive in a, in a glorious way. And, and, um, I, but but I, I suppose um, one of the things for me has been reading with Jews, you know, there is something about, you know, for the last 25 years, I've been doing scriptural reasoning with Jews. And there is something about reading with really good, you know, readers of scripture, which so many Jews are, you know, who really know their Hebrew too, though they don't know the Septuagint usually. And, you know, that's the first Jewish translation of the whole of Hebrew scriptures, and it is the mediating book between Judaism and Christianity. It was the Bible of the authors of the New Testament, of course. And uh, it's, I think it's my desert island book, you know, that I bring to the desert island. But, but, but it's, um, but, but the, you know, reading scripture with Jews, um, and also, might I say, I mean, John's Gospel, it's so problematic for many Jews, you know, because of the way the Jews are, are talked about in it. And, uh, you know, they are called children of the devil in chapter, chapter 8. But, 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 but I think that what we are called as Christians to do in those sort of cases where, you know, all traditions have problematic texts um, is to try to heal the reading tradition. You know, it really is shocking. You've probably read Luther on John's gospel and on the Jews and, and what he says. You know, you know they, it, they are demonized, literally, by, by Luther. You know, and and it, it is really shock, deeply shocking, you know, what, what is said there. I think we are called to heal those reading traditions. You know, I don't think they are intrinsic to the scriptures. You know, we don't have to go there. But my goodness, we need to read with Jews and read with real live Jews, you know, not just our imagination of what they might be saying about things. And I, I guess my other question, we talk about scripture, um, and, and I must say I, I've so much valued your, um, your focus on scripture both tonight and, and in other contexts and some of the richest uh, Bible study I was, I've, I've done have been with you and, uh, and other colleagues and friends uh, over the years, just that chance to sort of seat, sink your hearts and minds deeply into the scriptures. But I guess the other aspect of this is the creeds and how significant the creeds are for the the orthodoxy we're speaking of. And I suppose my, um, in, my, in my own thinking about this, the more I think about orthodoxy, the more I go back to something like Nicaea as a mm. crucial moment in the church's yeah. uh, distillation of orthodoxy. Um, because it says something very distinctive about who Jesus is. And a lot of it focuses on that very question because it arose out of the Arian dispute and it goes into that who question, doesn't it? Yes, absolutely. Um, yes. Nicaea is all about who is Jesus. And yes. There's other, other things that go on around that as well but that's the key question at the heart of it um and so I, I guess my question is how significant is that you know people often got creedal orthodoxy how, how significant are the creeds for that uh, that reading of scripture and for the kind of general orthodoxy that the project we're involved in here trying to define what this might mean well i think utterly yes utterly important i mean in my <coughs> one of my really close friends and colleagues is francis young you know of birmingham university and she she and i spent ah, five years once writing a book on second corinthians you know meaning and truth in second corinthians and it was so wonderful doing a, a really intensive time with a really good not only new testament scholar but patristic scholar as well and she of course is steeped in that whole tradition and <coughs> and her 
wonderful work on you know, how that tradition developed the creeds and how it read scripture and how the two are utterly inseparable from each other. You know, I, I think, you know, her reading of patristics in terms of both creeds and scriptures is, would be my, you know, the thing that I've learned most from, in fact, on that, and I absolutely agree with you. And I guess one last question. Um, I guess the word orthodoxy for many people feels like a sort of... Um, kind of harsh, rigid thing. I remember, I remember once interviewing someone for a job and uh, we talked about generous orthodoxy and they said, oh, well, quite like the generous bit, but not quite sure about the orthodoxy. Um, for some people, it feels like a rather restrictive view of the world, having to kind of, um, you know, and, and the word orthodoxy used in other contexts is often used in a negative way. Yeah. You know, you're sticking to this orthodoxy. I mean, how, how would you want to describe orthodoxy in a way that, that it's away from that, <laughs> that sort of image of it. Yes, well, I tried to do it today. I, I don't use the term much myself, you know, you, you know but I, li I, you know, I, I, I can use it. You know. You know, it has the same issue as identity, doesn't it? You know, it can be misused. You know, the corruption of the best is the worst. You know, I think it's a great word you know, if you go to it, origins and how it, how it should be used. But, uh, but, of course, it depends what sort of orthodoxy and so forth. And unfortunately, it is exactly true that the corruption of orthodoxy is the worst, you know, that, that, you know, those people who set themselves up as the arbiters of orthodoxy, and my goodness me, you know, if you don't conform to what they say is orthodoxy, you are out, you know, and, you know, that whole condemnatory thing which modern social media have intensified yet further. I mean, I mean, you read some of these things on the web, and it, you know, you, well, you almost wouldn't believe it, you know, I mean, what, what people say in the name of orthodoxy, and so, of course, it gets a bad name. But, um, but no, I, I think it's a perfectly valuable. No, I, I just don't overuse it. You know. Do you have another word you use instead of it? Um, I think mainstream Christian wisdom. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, mean, I mean, I think the thing about wisdom is that, A, it's biblical, um, and B, it mediates between the practical and the theoretical. Yeah. You know, that, that it, it has the cognitive, but it also has the practical. And um, I think, and of course, it is one of the words that is traditionally used by Aquinas and all sorts of others for, for, for theology. And so therefore, uh, you know, wh why, why not use a term like wisdom? And centers on Jesus Christ as the wisdom of God. Exactly, yes. David, thank you so much for um, being with us this evening. Thank you for your, um, uh, the real wisdom that you gave us in, in your lecture, the range that you uh, took us on through John's Gospel, through Hans Fry, through so many other things. And it's been a great introduction to our, our theme on, of generous orthodoxy in these lectures. So we're really grateful to you for coming tonight and for engaging in our conversation as well. Thank you very much. Thank you. was GodPod, a podcast from St Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try.